Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I'm Marilyn Brandt. Uh, She's a research associate professor, part of the Center for Marine and Environmental Studies, University of the Virgin Islands. We're going to talk about coral reefs, their ecology, and their disease processes. So, Marilyn, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about your background. How did you get an interest in and, and start to study corals? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I'm actually from originally from the Hudson Valley in New York State. So there's not a lot of corals there. Um, but I grew up with a really strong interest in environmental conservation, but wasn't really, didn't have a lot of mentors who were in that. And so I thought, you know, that I was really interested in science. And so I went to college to study, uh, to be pre-med and to become a medical doctor, but realized after about a year that that was just not what I actually wanted to do. And I did a research experience in the Cayman Islands in the, Car- in the Caribbean, where I was introduced to coral reefs and fell in love. And that was kind of it. I was hooked and then went on to volunteer and do internships continuously in the Cayman Islands, graduated from NYU, and then went to graduate school at the University of Miami, where I studied. I sort of melded my interest in medical science with coral reef ecology by starting to study coral diseases. And that has become extremely important in recent years uh, with new outbreaks of highly virulent diseases. So I just continued to make my way south. So did some postdocs with the National Park Service that covered the Virgin Islands National Park, and then got a research faculty position at the University of the Virgin Islands, and I've been here since. Yeah, so what uh, dive spots or what areas do you focus on that forms the underpinning of your research? Where do you go and dive and look at corals? So I dive right off of the 
the coast here in St. Thomas. So I live on St. Thomas, which is one of the three main U.S. Virgin Islands. The U.S. Virgin Islands is made up of St. Thomas, St. John, and St. Croix. And actually, we do diving around all three of those islands. For those of you not familiar with the U.S. Virgin Islands, we're located just east of Puerto Rico, and we are a U.S. territory. So my, the majority of my research focuses here in the U.S. Virgin Islands on the coral reefs of the U.S. Virgin Islands, but has a lot of applications to Caribbean coral reefs in general. And I have studied coral reefs in the Cayman Islands, in Panama, the Turks and Caicos, Florida, Dominican Republic, Antigua, and several other places in the Caribbean. So I've done some pretty extensive fieldwork across the Caribbean region. All right. So what do you notice about the different uh, reefs in different areas that you've studied? Well, it's really interesting because there's just, they're always different. Every place that you go, there's such a diversity of reef types and reef communities. There are a lot of different coral species, but actually in the Caribbean, we only have a little over 60 types of corals. Whereas in the Pacific, there's, you know, over thousands of types of corals There's not tons of coral species here in the Caribbean, but each reef you go to is just kind of a different mashup of those species. They're all kind of there, but they have different shapes and different sizes and different configurations. And I just always find it really fascinating to go to a new reef and learn about its unique characteristics, much like every Caribbean nation that you go to has a unique history and unique background. The reefs also have that same kind of unique diversity and background. Yeah, I imagine you going on a tour of a bunch of different reefs and you can call it a reefer madness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. We do get well, a little the, reef madness here. <laughs> well, tell me about some of the variation that you've seen. So there's different types of corals, not as many as in the, in the wide ocean, but what are some of the variations you see and what are some of the commonalities in the different reefs? Yeah. So, I mean, in general, most reefs are made up of kind of the same species or same types of corals but they're just in different abundances or different shapes. And so an example with, there's a group of species called the boulder star corals and I'll avoid scientific names, but there's three of these that are commonly, it's hard to distinguish between them, but when you see them in the shallow environments, they tend to have this very mounding boulder characteristic, hence their name. But as you go deeper And that's one of our specialties here at the University of the Virgin Islands is we study deeper reefs too. We have that capability. As you go deeper, they kind of flatten out. And that has to do with their characteristics of catching the light. So corals at their most basic are really a relationship, a very tight relationship. You could call it like a roommate relationship between the coral animal and these microscopic plants that live in their tissues or algae, microalgae that live in their, in their tissues. And so the, the plants are photosynthesizing. And so they obviously need light for that. Whereas the corals will feed from, from the water, they'll feed on plankton from the water. So this group of species, the bouldering star corals, as you find them in the shallow reefs, they'll be very bouldery, and they're, you know, really dependent on that light catching. And then as they move deeper, they flatten out to try to get that light. But then they also kind of switch over to relying more on eating from the water column. So it's just really interesting that they, they change so much in, in a span of like 60 to 80 feet depth. So what's the relationship? So the coral, it, it literally, how does it eat? Yeah. So it, how does it find and trap and eat what it eats? First well, if you think... 
yeah, sorry. If you think of a, a coral is in the same group of animals as jellyfish. So if you think of a jellyfish, you know, it's got this little dome and it's got the tentacles hanging down and it catches food by drifting along and just stinging food in the water column and then using those tentacles to direct that food into the jellyfish. So a coral is also very close to a jellyfish. They're both in the group called Cnidaria. So a coral is just kind of a flipped upside down jellyfish, but one that grows a skeleton. So the coral is basically a mouth surrounded by tentacles. And those tentacles at night primarily are out and feeding from the water column. They're just kind of like moving around, wiggling in the water, and they're catching any plankton that come along. So corals do actually have the same types of stinging cells that jellyfish have. They're just much smaller so that you don't feel them if you touch them. But the corals build a skeleton. And the, and the reason they can do that is because they have these roommates, the plants, the algae that live in their tissues that are photosynthesizing and giving them so much extra nutrients and extra kind of energy during the day that the corals can shunt some of that energy into building this calcareous structure that over millennia creates these coral reefs. Well, so how much of the coral is alive versus dead? Well, when you're looking at a coral colony, so if you think of a brain coral, that's mostly what people can visualize, really only the very outside of it is alive. So it's actually a very thin skin on the outside, but that skin continuously lays down skeletons. So it's constantly building and building beneath it, but really only the outside of the coral colony is that thin skin of living tissue. And that's why we, we say don't touch the corals because- it's just that thin skin. And if you do, if you touch them or bang on them, it's very damaging to them. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. It's kind of like the earth. You know, we're living on the outer skin of it, but most of it is not... uh... I mean, it's alive, but maybe not as actively alive as what's on the skin. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, you know what? I'm going to steal that for future talks because that's a great analogy. (laughs) It's very much like the earth. Um, It's that thin skin. And there is so much going on on that surface because it's the coral. It's the algae that lives in their tissues. But there's all kinds of microbes that are in the coral underneath the coral in the skeleton, and then most importantly, on the surface of the coral, that the surface, what we call the surface microbiome of the coral is extremely important, we're finding, to the health of coral reefs and to those corals. So where do um, the plant matter that composes uh, composes the coral, where does it tend to hang out? Is it in the same spot or is it living in discrete pockets in the the coral that's already dead in the skeleton? Where Where does it live? So that's an interesting question, but it actually is. So corals are are basically three layers of tissue. 
So you have an epidermis, a mesoglea, which isn't fully formed, and then a gastrodermis. So, you know, when we're tiny developing early stages of a human, you have, you have those layers too, and your gastrodermis develops into your stomach. Um, so corals actually keep these microalgae, which are just little single celled algae and plants, and they keep them in that one layer in the gastrodermis layer. So they really, those algae, those plants live throughout the whole coral, but only in that one layer. So when you look at a coral, the beautiful colors that you're seeing on a living coral are actually the algae giving them their, their color. And when a coral gets really stressed out and basically if they're exposed to too high of a temperature or some other stressor, the relationship that they have with that algae, with those plants living in their tissue breaks down and they essentially kick their algae roommates out or in some cases they eat them or digest them. And then that leads to a condition called coral bleaching, which is when the coral turns bright, bright white. It looks like somebody dumped bleach all over the reef. And that's because the coral tissue has become translucent and you can see right to the coral skeleton. So the coral will be alive, but the algae that those plants that gave it its color are gone. And so it's just this translucent tissue showing the skeleton underneath. Well, what's the, when bleaching happens, what's the order of occurrence? What happens first and next and next and next? Well, some of that's still in debate and some of it is dependent on what caused the bleaching. Um, the most common bleaching people hear about is mass bleaching that is related to temperature stress, usually when the temperatures get too hot. And what happens in that case is, and, and there's still some debate, is um, it, it's almost like the, the algae starts to overreact and over um, create too many, too much like oxygen and too much it creates too much good stuff almost. And then that starts to harm the coral animal. And, um, you know, there's still actually a lot of active research on this, but in some cases that leads to kind of the breakdown of the, the organelle that's holding the plant. And so the plant's released, or in some cases there's evidence that the coral will actually, since it's in the gastrodermis, will actually just, just digest the plant itself. So there's like, there's a lot that goes on. And the interesting part too, is that corals, it depends the type of plant that the coral is hosting. So these, these symbionts that live in them, the plants can be of different species. And some species are more tolerant to stress than other species, which is really interesting. So in a coral, you might not see all of it bleach at once because it might be hosting multiple species of this endosymbiont. And so it may only be getting or be expelling, you know, kind of the bad roommate <laughs> and the one that's not as resilient to the temperature stress uh, compared with like the good roommate. Well, what's exchanged between, um, you know, the plant portion and the coral portion typically? What kind of metabolites, are, you know, is that being studied? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the plant essentially gives the coral sugars and oxygen. And in exchange, the coral get, is respiring. So it's giving nutrient, essential nutrients to the plants and carbon dioxide. So it's sort of a very classic plant-animal symbiotic relationship where they're each giving each other exactly what, what they need to grow and survive. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Is the coral able to extract oxygen that's dissolved in the water or it has to only rely on the plants? And how is the oxygen um, delivered? Is it delivered you know, gaseously or in some other form? That's a really good question. And I would have to go back <laughs> to review that because I'm focused mostly on ecology. Uh, but I believe it's distributed or d- delivered as gas. And then the corals are also getting some dissolved oxygen from the water as well. But they do really, really rely on those endosymbionts. And when they bleach, that causes the corals to be in an extremely stressful state. So they actually, we know that when they lose those endosymbionts, they start to, um, they stop growing, they stop laying down skeleton and they stop creating or they stop reproducing like a coral that bleaches in one year will often fail to spawn in the next year so when is it by definition dead or is it it too early a definition for it no when a coral bleaches it's it's definitely alive and it can actually regain if the stress is taken off of it it can regain those algae so it can reacquire them and that's another process that's not fully understood how exactly they regain the symbionts because it seems like they decide who they want to take back in. So some corals will bleach and they'll get rid of a specific type of the algae, like a specific species. And then the species that they take back up when the stressor is reduced is a different type, is a different species. So that's also, we don't understand how they pick them, how, how do they distinguish them. So well, within, really- a, within, a, within a given area, mm-hmm. will you see different plant animal situations where they're working together or will you see kind of like all the corals will pick a certain plant or like on a given coral, let's say you have one that's huge, you know, there's 20 different formations on it. Will each formation pick the same, you know, like symbiotic partner, partner or will they all pick different ones? So <laughs> as usual, it's a very diverse story. So If you're talking about like the boulder star coral that I was mentioning before, one of those can become massive and it can host multiple types of that symbiont, multiple species of that symbiont. And the coral that's sitting right next to it can also host totally different symbionts depending on, you know, what it went through in its past. So, so you can have an incredible amount of diversity in terms of that plant animal relationship on a reef in just one location. And that's often, you know, sometimes during bleaching events, we will see two corals of the exact same species right next to each other, like say two brain corals, and one will be fully bleached and the other looks happy as a clam. It's perfectly fine. And it has to do with which plant that coral was hosting and how well it was tolerating that that temperature stress. Does it bleach because of the temperature stress or it bleaches because of its symbiont partner that may or may not be good for it, I guess. Well, that's a good question. Usually the cause, the environmental cause is the temperature stress. And then the reaction of the coral is a reaction to that temperature stress. And that reaction may be severe, meaning leading to bleaching, or it may do nothing. So, you know, that just gets at like how individuals, there's such a diversity of individual responses to stress. I mean, you can think about this in terms of humans, even in the case of like, you know, the pandemic we've all been going through. Some people get COVID-19 and have meet an unfortunate end and other people get a small sniffle for a day or two. 
corals are animals. And so they have that same reaction to disease and to stress. Some of them do better and others do much, much worse. And figuring out why that is, you have to take into account a lot of complexity. You have to take into account the background of that coral, its genotype. So it's genetic structure, not just its species, but what that coral has been through to get to that location. So there's in ecology, in coral reef ecology, there's a lot of complexity. And I think, you know, in the past, people have tried to to oversimplify things by saying, oh, well, that's just the breakdown between the plant and the animal. But there were these differences people were noting, you know, corals, some corals were bleaching, some were not. And it came down to the fact that there's this diversity of interactions between that plant and that animal that can determine when that relationship breaks down. But there's other factors involved too. <laughs> so well, it's very there's certain, complex. Are there certain yeah. symbionts that seem to never cause bleaching? And certain ones that are like, you know, a bad choice that seem to readily bleach. Yeah, there's definitely that. So so, there's not symbionts that never cause bleaching. There's that relationship will always break down eventually. But there are symbionts that are just really resilient to thermal stress. And so the question is, why don't we just focus on, you know, infecting corals with those symbionts? And that's because we also know that there's actually an energetic trade-off to hosting the thermally resilient, those like really thermally tough symbionts, they actually take more nutrients from the coral. They take, you know, more oxygen from the coral. And so the coral grows slower and it's, it's skeleton is less dense and it doesn't reproduce as much if it's hosting that specific species, but that species is very tolerant to temperature stress. So it's a definitely a trade-off. And then the species that are the algae that no symbiont species that's not tolerant to thermal stress is very easy on the coral. Um, but, you know, it breaks down that relationship real quick. It's very. So it seems like the, the, yeah. the symbionts are, I don't know, an ad hoc microbiome for the, cor- for the coral. Yeah. And when conditions change, the coral says, all right, we're going to swap it out for something else that appears to be more beneficial at this time, but there's always trade-offs. Yeah, so it seems like absolutely. that's what's going on. Yeah, it is. And also there's, you know, you'll have a thermal stress event. The coral species, the coral will kick out its temperature, not resilient species of of algae. And then it'll get back a more temperature resilient species of algae. And then over time, so over the process of a year to a couple of years, it'll eventually revert back to its original species that it was hosting. Because again, that one was less or took less from the coral. And certain coral species definitely gravitate to certain symbiont species. So there are certain coral species that will never host one species, but will always host, you know, a set of other species. So there's all these like interesting co-evolution factors too that are happening that, you know, these corals have evolved over millions of years along with their symbionts. And it seems like they have these well-defined relationships with the symbionts that we are just starting to really understand and investigate more thoroughly. Well, where do the symbionts go when they're kicked out and what That's form do they take when they're not in the coral? Yeah, usually the the species that they are, they can usually have a flagella, flagellum, like a little, you know, wiggly part to them. Um, but when they're in the coral, they're just a single cell. They don't have that 
they're dinoflagellates, so they don't have that flagellum. So when they're expelled, we don't really know in nature what happens to them. If they just float around or get eaten or they just degrade because they no longer have the help of the coral. Um, but we do know that after a coral recovers from the stress, they seem to be they seem to be acquiring these symbionts from the water, from the seawater. So there are living, free living symbionts out in the ocean that the corals can then acquire and integrate into their tissues. What happens in between, between expulsion and, and, and acquiring them back? We don't, we don't know what, if those algae that are expelled are, you know, just fine as they are, and that's who comes back, or if there's some sort of free living form that then becomes integrated into the coral. Well, if a coral is changing up and getting a new symbiont, it's getting it from the water around it. They have yeah. to be hanging out somewhere and still be alive enough to go come into the coral. Yeah, we just don't know exactly where they live. There is also evidence that when a coral bleaches, one or two or just a few of these guys of the plant symbionts will remain in the coral. And then when the temperature or when whatever the stressor is, is removed, that those guys will proliferate very quickly. So corals that are isolated from the ocean environment can often regain their coloration or or you'll see a, an increase in the density of the symbionts in them because there were just a few that were left over. But we definitely know that both of those things are happening, the regrowth as well as acquiring from the ocean. But we don't know where they where they hang out. Sounds like the, uh, the appendix of a human storing some extra bacteria. Yes. But yeah, that's that yeah, that's a very good correlation. Like they don't, you know, they obviously don't have they're very simple in terms of structure. So they don't have an appendix like structure, but somewhere they have, you know, they are cloned polyps that are joined together with tissue. So somewhere among, you know, that large coral, they may just hold a little pocket of them. Well, what about, uh, so the outer surface of the coral is the active growing interacting mm-hmm. part and inside the dead skeleton. The symbionts, do they hang out just near the outer active part or does some burrow into the interior skeleton? And is it, you know, hypoxic in there? What are the conditions and you know, do different yeah. symbionts grow internally versus the outer ones? Well, no, the symbionts all grow in that one layer of tissue, that gastrodermis, which is which is the layer of tissue that tends to be kind of resting on the coral skeleton. They're very protected in the coral tissue itself. So there is no, none of the symbionts live outside of that tissue layer. But there's a an incredible diversity of microbes, bacteria, archaea, like that live on the surface of the coral and that live in the skeleton itself. And there's evidence to show that the coral is regulating those communities as well. So the coral on the surface exude mucus. So they have these you know, mucus cells that they're exuding mucus on the, onto their surface and the bacterial, the microbial communities that are on their surface mucus are very distinct from the surrounding seawater, which you would think if you're going to like put mucus out into the seawater, there's tons of microbes in the seawater. It would probably look very similar, but no, no, no. There are specific types of microbes that are hosted in that surface mucus layer by the corals. And that's, we have been really comparing that to kind of the human gut story about how we're finding that human health has so much to do with kind of like your, the microbiome that you're maintaining in your body and, you know, in your gut system, it seems to be the same case with these 
corals is that they, certain types of corals have certain bacteria that they like to host in their mucus that have properties that are, you know, disease fighting properties and that are really important to their defense against this like microbial soup that they live in. But what is the uh, interface between supposedly dead skeleton and active growing surface look like? You know, has anyone looked at, it's not tissue, but maybe it is the histology or the, you know, use yeah. the microscope to look at this interface and, you know, what does the interface yeah. look like? Well, it's really, it's like the, it's just a kind of a layer of tissue and you can see like the little, the little plant dots in that layer. And it looks like, I, you know, the way I kind of think about it is the coral itself looks almost like a tooth sitting in your gum. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it's got little tendrils that go into the skeleton and that's where it's precipitating the skeleton. And then in the skeleton itself, there are different microbial communities in there. There's often some different fungi that are living in there that the coral, there's a, a certain species of, of Caribbean coral that when it gets stressed out, that kind of area of where the coral's sitting on the skeleton seems to break down and the fungi are allowed to invade. And that looks like from the top down, if you're looking at the coral from the top down, it looks like bruising on the coral, but it's actually this like purple fungus invading the tissues. But the coral can have that happen. And then if it becomes healthy again, so it stops being stressed, it actually fights that fungus back. And that is definitely an area that has not been investigated enough, but it's really, you can see that the fungal hyphae invading the tissues. And then for some reason, the coral is able to fight it back, but not all the way. That fungus still remains in the coral skeleton. So there may be some kind of interaction happening with the fungus and the coral. That's a helpful interaction for the coral. But when the coral becomes stressed, that interaction breaks down and becomes like pathogenic. Yeah. It sounds like, um, I don't know, I'm picturing like the gums and the teeth in my mouth, but the reverse. So my, yes, my teeth yeah. are the skeleton and then they have, you know, roots that go to the bone and then the gums, I guess, you know, yeah, the outer surface for, for the coral. Right, right, and exactly. The teeth are the inner surface. <laughs> yeah, that's and kind of what saliva. it looks like on a histology slide. Yeah. Well, I have saliva and mucus in my mouth too. So it's very yeah. similar. There's a lot of similarities, you know. Yeah. And that saliva and mucus is really important. You know, if you don't, I just had a, my four-year-old daughter just got a salivary gland infection. It was terrible. And, you know, when that relationship, when that microbiome in your mouth breaks down, it's not, it doesn't end well. So, you know, that's a very delicate balance. And then what we're finding with, with corals is stress, you know, environmental stress can shift that balance and change kind of the ability of corals to fight off invaders, um, both from below, from their skeleton and from above. Well, is the skeleton really dead then? Maybe it's That's, like, um, maybe yeah. it's like bone in, in a human body. And yeah. It, you know, it provides nutrients. Maybe there's a marrow to the coral skeleton. I don't know. Maybe there's transport no, going on there or communication. Yeah. I mean, there's not marrow, but, but it's definitely, you know, I'm not sure I would say it's alive, but but the one thing I can say is that when a coral dies, so you have a coral, again, think about a brain coral. And if you kind of try to hammer into the brain coral, which I do a lot for sampling, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. it's very tough and very hard. But if you allow that coral to die, so that skin on the outside dies, 
And then you go back a year later and hammer into that, that thing will just come apart really easily. The skeleton will come apart. And that's because without the coral there, you get a lot of bio eroders have, you know, in there and the skeleton basically breaks down. And so I like to think of that, or I'd like to, because people, a lot of people say, oh, well, the corals are dead, but the reef structure is still there. And, you know, the reef structure is just not as strong anymore without the living coral there holding it there. It's essentially like a human body dying or a human body that your bones are strong when you're alive, but when you die, your bones turn to dust. Eventually they become very brittle. And that's exactly what happens to coral skeletons when they die is they become more brittle. They become more susceptible to being invaded to these bio eroders, like these organisms that just break down the skeleton. So, um, you know, I don't, they don't use the skeleton that we know of for that much translocation, like across the whole colony, but that could definitely be happening like a polyp to polyp, you know, small, small scale level. And there's, there's certainly some strength that the coral is giving to that overall skeleton that's lost when the coral surface dies. You say corals can bleach and then uh, symbionts will return to them sometimes, right? So apparently dead corals seem to still be, they're still able to attract symbionts and come back to life sometimes? Yeah, they look bright, bright white when they're bleached. So they're not, they're not dead. The tissue is still there. The animal tissue is still there. And then they can get the symbionts back and, and return their coloration. A coral, when it, but it can, that's a very stressful state for it. So even though it's gotten its symbionts back, it's not like it's back to 100%. And this is, again, to use kind of a human health perspective, after you've gone through a very stressful period or a long illness or something like that, and you recover, your body's not what it was before that, right? It's still weakened and can be susceptible to other things happening. So what we know, some of my research in the field has shown that after corals go through these stressful bleaching events, yes, they may recover, but they're at a much higher risk of getting tissue eroding diseases. And these are diseases, so they may survive the bleaching and then succumb to diseases that essentially eat away at their tissues. And these are you know, often bacterial diseases or diseases caused by viruses that likely are taking advantage of the coral's weakened state to invade and kill the whole coral. Yeah, it just seems, you know, why would, um, why would these symbionts uh magically preferably go back to a dead exoskeleton it must be maybe still alive in some way and the symbionts know okay yeah where we you know where we can hang out and and survive versus just you know the the, i don't know i'm picturing coral on the the floor of the ocean sitting there and it's bleached and then next to it's just sand and all kinds of stuff so why would the symbionts say oh okay let's go back to the coral skeleton but not the sand there must be something about it still that lets lets the symbionts know yeah, well, I mean, that the, specific place. the coral is still there. The coral t- animal is still there. So I think like the question also can be thought of in reverse. Why? Because it, it may not be the symbiont seeking out the coral. It may be the coral, once it's that stress has been removed, actively seeking out and taking from the water column the symbionts. So, you know, the symbionts may be drifting along, but not actively looking for a coral host Whereas the corals could be recognizing, okay, I'm now in a good enough condition to host these symbionts again. 
So I'm going to, you know, extend my tentacles and try to capture some and integrate them back into my system. And we don't know, it's hard to say which, which side is happening. Are the symbionts actively seeking out that home to go back to? Or are the corals, is it all the corals just trying to get those symbionts back? When the coral dies, so, you know, a coral can bleach, but it won't necessarily die. But when a coral dies, then that's it. Then that's usually sort of mac what we call macroalgae or seaweeds start to take over the space that the coral was in or other organisms like sponges take over that space. So, okay. So it sounds like there's truly dead bleached corals and then there's ones that are bleached, but not necessarily dead. Right. Yes, definitely. So there's truly, so dead, so corals will bleach and then they can die, but a coral can bleach and survive and get back their symbiont. Yeah. Huh. And no one knows what's different about them. What's deader than a doornail versus apparently dead, but not dead. Well, the difference is the tissue is still there. So when you go, if, and that's, you know, it can be hard. It takes an expert usually to go look at a, a bright, if a coral looks bright, bright white, distinguishing whether it's because the coral animal is just completely dead and that's exposed skeleton versus whether the coral is actually just bleached and it's still there. You have to go look really close at it. And the way you can tell is if the coral's still alive, it's still going to be moving its tentacles and it's still going to be getting kind of sediments that often land on corals and getting little algae off of its body. So it'll look really, really clean. Whereas an area of a coral that dies where the skeleton is, it's only skeleton now, sediments and little microalgae are going to start to settle on there right away. So you can see like the algae starting to just grow. And this is not the type of algae that lives in the coral tissues. I'm talking about like seaweeds types of algae. And you'll see that growing in, in its place. Okay. Well, very good. Uh, so what major hypotheses are you working on that you're trying to figure out over the next you know, year, two, three years? Yeah. So we're looking, my team is kind of looking at a, at a macro level and an ecological scale to understand how coral communities. So I mentioned, you know, at the beginning, like there's such diversity among the different coral communities and what, how that diversity in both the types of the species of corals that are there, and then also the symbionts that they host, how does that make certain reef communities more or less resilient to disease and to the spread and to thermal stress too. And we're trying to do that because I also run the Virgin Islands Reef Response Program, which is a coral restoration program. So we're trying to propagate corals and restore corals. And it doesn't make sense to just restore corals to areas where, you know, they're just going to die from the same stressor again. So we're trying to figure out, you know, what configuration of coral species and coral symbiont species leads to a more healthy and resilient reef because the reefs right now, you know, with the projected increases in, in temperatures, they're going to be going through a lot more thermal stress. So we want to make sure we want to identify those characteristics of reefs that make them really resilient to that kind of stress. And our hypothesis is that, you know, in the past, people have focused on restoring or focusing on, on certain, just the major reef building species. Our hypothesis is that you, you need to focus 
on a wider range of species that represent a diversity of responses to disease and temperature stress. And that's going to provide you the most resilience. Makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find out more about your work? Where can they go? Well, I actually have two different websites for my laboratory. So the, the coral restoration side of my work is can be found at viriefresponse, all one word, dot org. Or if you're interested in more about kind of our coral disease work and the response of the U.S. Virgin Islands to coral disease, a lot of that work and research can be found on vicoraldisease.org. Okay, very good. Yeah. Well, I, yep, I really appreciate you coming. I know that you have a, a lot of knowledge about corals and um, I don't know, it's, it just seems like a very complicated but fascinating and uh, somewhat anthropomorphic uh, system to study, you know, very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy it. There's a lot to do in it, though. <laughs> so there's oh, still a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Marilyn. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.